0: And once again, let me welcome you to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, especially if you're visiting with us. Glad that you're here. You're our guest, and welcome. Our uh, sermon passage this morning is Psalm 2. You see it printed there in your bulletin, and last week we started a series in the psalms that we're calling God for the world. Uh, for just a few weeks in July, we're, we're looking at different psalms that show us God's heart for the nations and God's heart for our neighbors. And there's only five Sundays in July, so it was hard to narrow, it was hard to narrow this down to just five psalms because we see this theme all over the place, just like we see this theme all over the place in the Bible as a whole, that God is for the world. His kingdom is on the move, and he's, he's at work drawing all kinds of people to himself from all kinds of different places, people like you and me and people very different than you and me. God is on mission pursuing the world, pursuing the nations and our neighbors with his redeeming, reconciling love, and he's using you and me in that mission. He's using you and me with all of our limitations, all of our incompetencies, all of our failures and weaknesses. He's using us in this mission to call the the nations and our neighbors, to Himself. You see, when God calls us into Himself, He's also calling us out into the world. When grace grips you, it also sends you. When Jesus reconciles you to Himself, He also releases you out into the world with the good news of the gospel. And these psalms that we're looking at both today and last week and for the next three weeks, they remind us of this. They remind us that when Jesus spoke those last words to his disciples in Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission, when he said, Go therefore and make disciples out of all nations. He was not giving them new information. That was not novel. It wasn't something new. No, he was inviting the disciples then, and he's still inviting us now into something that he's been up to the whole time, since Genesis 3. God is for the world. And one day heaven will ring with the voices of people from every tribe and people and language and nations. Revelation 5. That's where we're going. That's the story that God is writing. That's what God is up to and what he's always been up to. But what we see this morning in our psalm, in Psalm 2, is that although God is for the world... The world is very much not for Him. God is for a world that is against Him. And so what happens when a God who is for the world meets a world that is against God? Well, Let's read and find out. Psalm 2, this is God's Word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us your spirit now to show us Jesus. Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe in the good news of the gospel that we see here in Psalm 2. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So we're going to unpack this psalm under these two very simple headings, the world against God and God for the world. Psalm 2 shows us a world against God, and it shows us God for the world. So first of all, what do we see here about a world against God. Verses 1 through 3, they give us a glimpse of the world as it really is, the way that it's always been. A world that, it, the way that it's been since Genesis 3, and the way that it's going to be till Jesus returns. And what is it? It's a world that's in full scale rebellion. It's a world that has signed and crafted its own declaration of independence against its creator, and it is in full scale rebellion. If you keep up with current events, if you watch the news, if you, if you know anything about 20th century history, you know that if you were to put all of the world leaders together in one room, all of the presidents, kings, queens, czars, presidents, whoever, they, there's no way that they could all agree about one thing, right? There's just too much pride, too much self-interest, too much distrust. For all of the global international leaders to all get together in one room and all hold hands and agree completely 100% about one thing. But the psalm writer says, actually, there is this, this moment in international politics when that's happened. And he tells us what that looks like in verses 1 through 3. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And then watch this, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Sounds like a truly unique moment in international politics, doesn't it? Except he's not describing this, like one unique moment. He's not describing the world as it was 4,000 years ago when he wrote this psalm. He's describing the world as it's always been, the way way that we are when we come into this world and the way that the world is now. World leaders and all of the people all over the globe, we can't all agree about anything, but we do agree about this. We do not want God over us. We will not have His Lordship. We want to be independent. We want to be autonomous. We don't want someone telling us what to do. We want to be the source of our own authority. We will not have God over us. You see, when it comes to God and his lordship, the psalmist is saying the world is all on the same page. And the unsettling thing here is that the the writer, again, he's not describing the world as it was 4,000 years ago when he was writing it, some unique situation back in Israel's history. He's he's describing the world as it's always been and the way that the world is now. A world in full-scale rebellion against its creator. A world that hates its maker. That desperately is struggling for independence. A world that's not neutral. It's not neutral territory. This world is not on the fence about God, but it's it's in full agreement that we do not want God over us. Notice three quick things that the psalm writer tells us about this, this full-scale rebellion. Notice that first of all, it's a stubborn rebellion. Verse two, the kings of the earth set themselves. That's the language of like digging in your heels. If your heart was like wet concrete, it's the language of that wet concrete drying up into a hardened, settled determination that we will not have God over us. The kings of the earth set themselves. They, and they will not be reasoned with. Secondly, it's an irrational rebellion. The nations do what? They rage. Like frothing at the mouth, howling at the moon, lunatics. It's irrational. They're raging. And notice that it's the, the people's plot in vain. That word vanity from Ecclesiastes Meaning empty, worthless, futile, wrong, utterly empty. The nations are plotting and strategizing completely in vain. It's worthless, it's empty, but they're stubbornly committed to it, to this irrational rebellion against our Creator. But see, here's the thing. Um, it's, not just, it's not just stubborn, and it's not just irrational. And it's not just out there. It's an across-the-board rebellion. Verse 1 tells us who all is caught up in this rebellion. And he says it's the the nations and the peoples. So I want you to notice that he's not just describing this situation as like one of the good guys writing about all the the bad guys out there. He's He's not writing this like an insider talking about all of those bad outsiders out there. What he's doing is he's using, he's stepping into God's vantage point and he's looking at the world from God's eyes and he's saying this is how God sees the world, all the insiders and outsiders. (laughs) In other words, he's saying this is how God sees the nations, including the people of Israel who I belong to at this time. It's across the board. So what the psalm writer is saying is this, this is not just a problem of like those bad people out there and we live in a bad world that's out to get us, and we just need to be safe and huddled up as the good guys. He's saying this is a human condition, and we're culpable. This belongs to all of us. This means that verse 3 is the heart cry of not just those bad people out there, but of everybody in this room, the way that we naturally come into this world. This is the rebel yell that's in our bloodstream, the way that we come into this world, let us burst God's bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now the they that that verse is talking about is God the Father and God the Son. God and His anointed King, the Messiah, that He he rules, that that He sends in His place to rule. And we do not want that. Notice His commandments. They're not good. They're not life-giving. They're bonds, they're cords that tie you up and, re- and restrict you and hold you back. That's how we interpret God's authority and lordship, the way that we come into this world. This is our natural, default, spiritual setting. Not just those people out there, but all of us in this, in this room, the way that we come into this world, we hate God's authority, we don't want God's rule, and we want to be our own masters. We are born into a world that's against God as people that are against God. Um, what do you do with this? What do you do with this? What do you do when you see the world as it really is? And some of that may not surprise you, but it may surprise you your own culpability in it, right? <laughs> that he's not just talking about the bad guys out there, but he's talking about everyone, the world, including us, the way that we naturally come into it, we've chosen sides and we've chosen the wrong one. We don't come into this world neutral or on the fence. What do we do with this? Well, one thing that we should notice is that Psalm, Psalm 2 should really only be about three verses long, right? After describing a world that is utterly and completely against God, Why is there anything left to the story? Why is there anything more to Psalm 2? It's because God is for the world. (laughs) It's because the world against God is not the whole story. And here's the thing, y'all. Psalm 2 is quoted. It's one of of the, the Psalms that's quoted more than anything in the New Testament. It's sprinkled like salt and pepper all over the New Testament. It's everywhere. Like the book of Revelation book of Hebrews, the Gospels. Psalm 2 is everywhere, but one fascinating place where we see this psalm and these very lines quoted is in Acts chapter 4. And here's the context. Peter and John have just been arrested and threatened for preaching about Jesus. And the early church, those first early Christians, come together for the first recorded prayer meeting. And they're huddled up in this room together, and they know that the authorities are about to be searching for them. And it's not safe, and it's dangerous, and it's beginning to dawn on them that what they believe about Jesus could cost them a lot. Their livelihood, their place in the community, and maybe even their life. Now, if you were gathered together in that context, what would you be praying for? If you're like me, you would probably be maybe instinctually praying for safety, right? Maybe praying for comfort. Maybe praying for Deliverance for God to get me out of this. God, I want life to go back to normal. I don't want it to always be like this. But you know what those first Christians prayed for? They were in that room, huddled up, beginning to experience the threatening, um, the threatening world that was against them and against God. And what did they pray for? They quote Psalm 2, these very words, <laughs> And then they pray for boldness to go back out there into that world that's against them and share the gospel with them. (laughs) They don't pray for safety. They don't pray for a ceasefire. They quote these very words and they say, Lord Jesus, please use us to go back out there into that world that's against you and use us. Listen to what they pray. They quote these lines that we just read and then they pray this. And now, Lord, look upon their threats And grant your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They're huddled up, threatened, it's not safe, and they're about to lose a lot. And they're praying that Jesus would stretch out his arm and heal the world that's coming and threatening them because they not only know and feel that the world is very much against God and against them, but they know what the rest of Psalm 2 is teaching, that God is for the world, and that he's going to use them, maybe even to give their lives, in the service of the gospel, going out to reach and to heal a world that is against God. And that's where we transition now, we see in the rest of the psalm that God is for a world that is very much against him. And I want you to see that in three ways. First of all, we see that God is for the world in the king that he sends, in the king that he sends. Notice this. After verses 1 through 3, God looks, he looks down from heaven and he sees the world in full-scale rebellion. He sees all of the nations united in hostility against him. And how does God respond? I love this. He doesn't even get out of his chair. It doesn't even make him get up. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. God sees the whole world arrayed against him in rebellion. All of the brokenness, all of the hostility, all of the hatred. And his pulse doesn't get one bit faster. He's so in control, he's so sovereign that he doesn't even get up off of his throne. He just sits there and laughs. Now listen, just to be clear, he's not when, he's, when we see God laughing here, he's not making light of the situation. He knows that it's a very serious situation. So he's not laughing at the suffering. He's not making light of the pain. He knows the deep wounds that this kind of hostility and hatred will give to so many people. People? No, he's not making light of that. Rather, he's laughing at the notion that this rebellion could ever be successful. (laughs) He's chuckling at the ridiculous idea that anyone or anything could ever get in the way of his good and gracious purposes for the world. What's comical to God? It's comical when his little enemies convince themselves that they can derail his sovereign grace when they think that their little efforts to overthrow God's kingdom could be successful. Maybe you need to see that this morning. Maybe this morning with the eyes of your heart, you need to look up and see God sitting and laughing Because isn't it true that so often all that we see of the world around us is verses 1 through 3, right? You scroll scroll through your Twitter feed. You look through Facebook. You look at the news, whether you're a CNNer or a Fox Newser. Whatever your source of news is, your newspapers, whatever. And all that we see is verses 1 through 3, right? The world is spinning out of control. It's chaotic. It's dangerous. It's falling apart. And we need to see God sitting and laughing at the ridiculous idea that any of it could throw off the rails His good and gracious, sovereign purposes for the world. So we need to see God sitting and laughing. So in verse 4, we see that. And then in verse 5, He speaks. Notice that in verses 1 through 3, the nations, the world, they grabbed the microphone, and we see what's on their heart when they say, let us um, burst, burst away their cords. Or uh, what's, the, what's the language there? Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's what they said when they have the microphone. Now God grabs the microphone, and God speaks. And here's where we're ready for God to, like, finally... Settle this and answer it. He is going to respond to the world's full-scale rebellion, and we're thinking now he's going to let them have it, right? Now we're going to see this this huge show of strength. This has gone on long enough. Now God is going to pull out the nuclear bombs and, and respond with this huge show of force and strength and victory and glory in response to the world's rebellion. And if we're thinking that, we're honestly a little underwhelmed, aren't we, when we get to verse 6? Because he says, here's my response. My response to the global, whole-scale, full-scale rebellion of the entire world, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. That's God's response. Just one person, one individual, on a little hill in Jerusalem called Zion. It just doesn't sound like a lot. It really sounds like God is bringing a, you know a knife to a gunfight here. He, sound, he, he sounds way outgunned here. We were really expecting some more firepower here, weren't we? I mean, look, we were expecting something stronger, something... Something more undeniable, something amazing, I guess. Something noticeable, something something that looks strong and powerful. But this, it just doesn't look like much. He sends one person and he sets him up on a hill in in Jerusalem. This little backwards global nobody called called Israel that didn't even show up on the map to the big nations of that time. And it just looks weak, doesn't it? It looks underwhelming. It looks small. It looks defeatable, vulnerable. You're telling me that one man set up on a hill in Jerusalem is God's answer to the full-scale rebellion of the whole world? I love this because here we get a glimpse again into the wonderful character and marvelous ways of God. Isn't this just so beautifully typical? Of the God of the Bible, who just seems to love using what looks weak and what appears to be small and humble and very defeatable to accomplish his indestructible, invincible, unstoppable purposes. Like Paul says, he chooses what looks foolish in the world to shame the wise, what's weak in the world to shame the strong. He chooses what's low and despised in the world so that when he accomplishes his good purposes, we have no other choice but to boast in him and to say that only God could have done that. So God's response to the full-scale hatred and rebellion of the whole world is to send one man, his chosen king, that he sets up on a little hill in Judah called Zion To rule and to reign in his place. Now, listen, if you know the rest of the story, you know that it actually gets even worse than that, doesn't it? Because that sounds weak and underwhelming, but when we get to the New Testament, we see this king set up on a hill in Zion in a way that we definitely did not expect. He's set up on a cross naked and bloody and mocked and alone. The king that God had sent set up on a hill in a way that looked so helpless and so small and so, so defeated. But he was God's answer to the rebellion of the whole world. He was God dying for a world that was against him. He was the king that God had sent to be set up on that hill. And it looked like weakness. But it was the greatest show of strength that the world had ever seen. Because it was God winning. It was God crushing the head of the serpent. Pushing back against the gates of hell and rescuing his rebels, his rebel enemies. From the shadow of death and darkness and hell. And covering their sins, defeating death in their place, it was the greatest victory in the history of the universe. But it was a moment that looked so small and so insignificant. And brothers and sisters, he's still at work right now in a world that is still very against him in the same way. In ways that look small. A kingdom that looks like a mustard seed, the way that it starts. In a kingdom that is as invisible as leaven in bread, but that will grow and that will get the victory. And that even though it is small, it's invincible. So we see that God is for the world in the king that he sends. Secondly, we see that God is for the world in the plan that he decrees, in the plan that he decrees. And in verses 7 and 8, we get to listen in on a fascinating conversation between God and his anointed king, between the father and the son that happened a long, long time ago. It's a really fascinating conversation because I bet that the original audience of this psalm, they probably thought that they were listening into a conversation between God and maybe King David or King Solomon or one of their one of their sons, something like that. But as, as time goes on and as king after king after king after king fails miserably in the history of Israel, the prophets take up this language. And we start to realize, especially by the time we get to the New Testament, they weren't talking about an ordinary king. And this is not an ordinary anointed Messiah son here. This is the son of God. We get to listen in on a conversation that happened a long, long time ago between the father and the son. And the son tells us what he heard the father say to him. Listen to what he says. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God is giving us a glimpse here of how the story's gonna end. He's showing us where this is all going. He lets us listen into a conversation that happened a long, long time ago about what's going to happen at the very end. I don't know if, you're, if you keep up with cycling, but if you do, you know that, that right now, uh, the greatest bike race in the history of the world is, is playing out over in Europe, the Tour de France. It's been happening for a long time. It's like 21 stages that covers about 2,000 miles up and down mountains. It's absolutely incredible. I love to watch it, but guess what? Um, You have to commit like six hours a day to watch a whole stage of the tour, and I usually don't have that much time to commit to it. They're racing right now, by the way. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home after church today, and I'm going to watch the replay of today's stage. And in order to get a, you know, a, a feel for how the whole stage went, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and I'm going to watch the very beginning, watch the first few miles, see if anything interesting happens there. I'll fast forward to about the middle. I'll watch, you know, a few miles there, see what's happening. And then I'm going to fast forward to the very end and watch the last 20 miles or so, because what happens at the very end, that's where, that's, that's where it gets exciting. That's where you see the sprint finishes and all of the heroics and all of that. But Y'all, here's what's happening in verses 7 through 9. It's like God is fast-forwarding to the end of the race to let us watch how it's going to end. He's giving us a glimpse of where this is all going, how the race is going to end. This is where this is all going for a world that's against God. (laughs) It's going to end in two ways, in undeserved mercy for some and in well-deserved justice for others. Mercy and justice. Grace and judgment. That's where the story's going. He's already told us. We know how it's going to end. Notice that God says to his son, he says, the nations will be your heritage and the ends of the earth will be your possession. He's saying, I've decreed it. It's written in stone. And there is going to come a day when my kingdom will come. And when my will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are barreling towards that day right now. It's coming, he says, because I've decreed it. He's saying there's going to come a day when every tribe and people and language and nation will be represented together in a world made new, scrubbed clean of sin. And they will be there purely by grace. All kinds of people from all kinds of places that will be the treasured possession of God the Father who, who sent His Son to be set up on that hill to die to make them His sons and daughters. He's saying it's coming. The, he's saying the walls of heaven are going to ring with the voices of people from all throughout time and all over the globe who have no business being there, other than the fact that he loved them from the very beginning. That's where this is going. Undeserved mercy for some that will be his heritage, his possession. But then he says another day is coming, a day of judgment, a day when perfect justice will be executed, when everything that's wrong with the world will be made right. When God will be patient no longer with a world that's against him and has refused every single offer of mercy for thousands of years and God's patience will finally be done. He's saying in that day, the king that I send to set up on that hill will be the judge of the world and he will come in glory and he will come with a show of strength. And he will come and the world will know his wrath and his fury and his anger. You notice we see language like that all throughout the psalm. He will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now you may hear language like that and think, that actually doesn't sound like a God who's for the world. That sounds like a God who's just as against the world as a, as the world is against God. Um, This language that we see here in verse 12 and the language of, of God's anger, of His wrath, and that it's quickly kindled, it can make us uncomfortable, uneasy. His fury and His wrath and His anger sounds like God is against the world, but I want you to see that it's actually the exact opposite. The perfect justice of God against evil against wickedness, against all that's wrong with this world is actually very good news. Because think about it like this. Have you ever been deeply angered over something that you care nothing about? Over something that means nothing to you? You see, this language here shows us that God is so deeply invested in and committed to His creation that's been broken by sin that He's not going to let it go. He will not let evil go unpunished. God is not on the fence or undecided or still trying to make up His mind about things like human trafficking and abuse, domestic abuse, sexual abuse. Slavery, school shootings, evil dictators, cruelty, exploitation. He's not still trying to make up his mind. He's not undecided or detached from those things. He's not just kind of wishy-washy about things like murder and lust and greed and pride and adultery and lying and covetousness and all of the really big and really small expressions of rebellion that continue to tear this world apart and to cause suffering and pain. He's not on the fence. God's justice is good news because it means that He's perfect and righteous and holy and good. And it means that He's so for the world that He will not let it groan forever under the weight of sin and the curse. A day is coming when He will make right everything that is wrong, when he will make everything that is sad come untrue. But brothers and sisters and friends, God's justice is only good news for you right now if you're on the right side of it, if you're on the right side of his justice. If you're on the wrong side of his justice, it's the worst news imaginable. And here's the thing. This psalm could have ended like that. Delivering the worst news imaginable. That God will... That, that, that the king will come and, and break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Period. End of story. It's done. What if the psalm ended like that? And it probably should have. But listen. God is so for the world... That he extends an invitation to the world that's against him. And he says, It doesn't have to end like this. It doesn't have to be like this. You can come to me. You can come and find refuge in the very God that you have offended. You can come and find shelter and safety in the very judge himself. Look at how the psalm ends. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. He's begging them. He's begging a world that's so against Him. Come to me. Repent and believe. I don't want to break you, but I will because I'm so for this world. He's inviting them to come and to find shelter and safety, and even this should blow your mind to find true blessing. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That word blessing, to be blessed, that was only reserved for the godly person of Psalm 1 so far in the Psalms. It's the way that the whole book of Psalms opens. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. But here, that very same blessing is extended to the very people that have been rebelling against him this whole time, to a world that's so against him. And he says, Come and find blessing and refuge and safety in the God that you've been rebelling against. When, um, when my kids were younger, I've learned not to do this anymore because they've learned to do it back to me. But when, they, when my kids were younger, I would, I would prank them a little and, um, you know, get, just get a reaction out of them by jumping out around a corner and scaring them. Maybe moms and dads or brothers and sisters, you know how fun that is. Um, now, I've learned not to do it anymore because they've gotten really good at doing it back to me. But several years ago, I just noticed this eventually, that I would, I would jump out and, you know, kind of scare my oldest two children, and they would run away from me. You know, they would, their first instinct was to go back. Rightly so. I usually do that when I'm scared. But I noticed something about my little daughter Libby, who was four years old at that time. I would, you know, pick my head around the corner and scare her, get a reaction. And her first little reaction, before even thinking about it, was to go towards me, was to fall forwards, was to go towards the very person that seemed to be scaring her or dangerous because she knew that that I was actually safe, that I was actually for her and not against her. And here's Jesus begging the nations, begging the world, And begging you this morning, if you haven't, to fall towards him. To find shelter in the God that loves you. That's willing to be broken instead. That's willing to climb up on that cross and to be set there in your place. Y'all, you can trust a God like that. And you can go out into the world with a gospel like that because you know how the story's going to end. It's that good and it's that certain. And the gospel really is that good. If you have accepted that invitation this morning, the invitation of the King, then he is sending you back out to go back out into a world that's against him with this gospel. If you've not accepted that invitation, today is the day. Jesus is extending this invitation to you personally this morning to come and find refuge in Him, to come and find shelter and safety for your soul in the God that you may have been running from your whole life and you didn't know it. And He's inviting you in this morning. Will you take him up on that invitation? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you you send us from this place with hearts full, with our sails full, our hearts inflamed and kindled with love that has never let us go. Lord, would you send us from this place as those that have heard the voice of the Good Shepherd who is now sending us out into the world that you are for, knowing that you go with us, knowing that you go in front of us, beside us, and behind us, knowing that we belong to you by your grace and that there's nothing better. Lord, with our hearts inflamed with that good news, May we worship you the rest of this day, this week, and our lives, giving our life for the one who gave his life for us. In your name we pray. Amen.